I have a friend who is a chaplain for a prison. He invited me to speak this week, and that was a lively bunch. I'm not going to lie, it's just good to be there to, to preach to these men. There's a hunger there, a, a sense of desperation, and even um, in a nuanced, subtle way, just a, a deep joy there. It's just a lively bunch. And with that in mind, I just don't want you today to be a bunch of bumps on a log. So I'm going to ask you a question as we get started, okay? So just bear in mind, uh, I'm looking for a lively bunch. I'm looking for applause if uh, this rings true for you. But aren't you glad that you have a Savior who takes what's broken in you and makes it beautiful? That's what I'm talking about. On Palm Sunday, a Savior King rode a humble beast to a sacrificial death for us. I want you to take your uh, Bibles, if you have one today, I'm going to throw you a curveball. We are not, you ready for this? The scandal of today, we are not going to put the verses on the screen, okay? So you're going to either have to trust me or turn in your Bible. So grab one. If you don't have a study Bible, this is a complimentary copy, thanks to the generosity of one of our donors here. But there's a black ESV study Bible all around this beautiful sanctuary. Grab one or grab your own or turn to your device. If you have a device, I know that you're probably not listening to me today, okay? I know what you're doing. God knows what you're doing. I just want to say that. But uh, John chapter 1, if you would turn there. John 1. And I didn't have my Bible marked today, not because I'm a bad person, but just I just kind of wanted to see how long it would take us to turn to John chapter 1. And hold your, when you get to John 1, which if you're using this Bible, it's a page 887. And be good today if you have an open Bible and keep it open. We're going to look at a few passages from the Gospel of John. As we begin, I want a quote from something I read years ago, something that was written at the turn of the century, something that probably some of you've read or heard before. Uh, it's called One Solitary Life. Uh, he never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never stepped foot in a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place of his birth. But about 20 centuries later, he's the centerpiece of human history. And every army that ever fought, every navy that ever sailed, every parliament that, every, that ever, ever sat, ever king that ever reigned together have not made the impact of this man, this one solitary life. When I was a kid, my parents would take me to church and I would sit way up there in the balcony. One time I threw a paper airplane and got in trouble. But sometimes I would listen. And it was when I first began to hear about this man named Jesus, this fascinating, compelling, intriguing, disturbing, shocking life, a man who was funny and serious, a man who was a dissident, a man who, had, uh, who spoke of a kingdom and a revolution. And as I got older, like many of you, if your eyes are peeled and you're looking out, I began to realize that his followers in many ways don't bear his marks and that as we institutionalize this thing, that we get further and further away from who he really is. It's why right behind that wall, behind the baptistry, there's a hallway and then there's a library and there's a few hundred books with Jesus in the title. And some of my favorite of those include um, 
One, written by Philip Yancey. I would encourage you to read it this Easter season. The Jesus I Never Knew. Because in many ways, we come up with our own Jesus. But the Jesus I began to learn about was a Jesus that fascinated me. And I want to say this morning that this one solitary life, the life like none other ever lived, this life that intrigued me as a boy to this day, as a man, an aging man, I might add, this life is not a subject to be debated. It's not a subject, a conceptual, theological, philosophical, abstract subject to be debated by experts, but it's a person, a person who offers you an invitation. Now, let me ask you this morning, how many of you like to receive an invitation? If you're like, come on, raise your hand. You know you don't want to be left out, right? Remember, don't be bumps on a log. Once again, how many of you like to receive an invitation, right? Woo! If you're like us, don't take this the wrong way, but if you're like us, we just have a lot of invitations at our house. Do you? In our, if you go into our kitchen, you look on the side of the refrigerator, if you look at the top of the kitchen counter in, in the top drawer there, you'll see invitations to birthday parties, to festivals, to crawfish boils, to weddings, wedding rehearsals, wedding receptions, uh, to lots of different events, to art festivals, uh, to an 80s party that Susan went to last night that I missed. The best decade ever, by the way, 80s. Jeff says 90s. I'm telling you, it's the 80s. But you get, we love an invitation, right? Because an invitation is a way that says, hey, come, come, come be a part. We want you there. Conversely, it's tough when you don't receive an invite, isn't it? Now, I've been there. I've been there. I've, I've heard about some of you having a party behind my back, right? You didn't invite the preacher. But I, we want to be included. And this gospel message, this global thing that the Bible describes in Revelation 5, 9, where every tongue, tribe, and nation are united around, according to Ephesians, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Don't you love that? Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, it's happening and it's in process of happening. Are united, not around every opinion, taste, or preference, or theological framework, but we're, re- we're united around one faith, one Lord, and one baptism. The invitation is to come and to see. Open your Bibles to John chapter 1. Jesus offers us a wonderful example. John chapter 1 and verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And in verse 46, Nathanael said to him, can anything good Come out of Nazareth. Philip said to him, say that with me. Philip said to him, Philip said to him, Philip said to him, when will he stop? You're thinking. Philip said to him, he offered an invitation to come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king 
of Israel. Simply put, here's Philip, who is a follower, a recent follower. And there's Nathaniel, we could describe as a not yet follower. And Nathaniel, with some scoff and ridicule and just misunderstanding, he says, Nazareth. Because, see, God incarnate didn't choose a great metropolitan city. He chose an obscure village. Some of you are from a small town, right? You can relate. What good ever comes from fill in the blank, the small town you're from? What good could ever come from Nazareth? And Philip says what I had you say out loud three times. He offers the invitation. We all love an invitation. Come, come and see. Now, I ask you to have your Bible open. Flip with me from John 1 to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, a very famous story of the woman at the well. Look at John 4, 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the Samaritan left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, say it with me, church, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This woman said what? Come see. Philip said, come and see a man. This woman, Samaritan woman said to the men back in the village, come and see. Come and see this man, it seems, who's more than just a rabbi. Could he be the Christ? Now in John 4, you see Jesus striking up a conversation with what we would say what scholars would say would be a woman of ill repute. He breaks some social barriers of respectability in striking up this conversation. Because in that culture at the time, Jewish men were not supposed to talk to strange, loose women. And Jews were not to relate at all to the Samaritans. And Jesus crosses those lines. And there's something there. And in both cases... You'll see in John 1 with Philip and Nathaniel, and in John 4 with this woman at the well, this Samaritan woman, in both instances, there's this invitation to come and see. Because they were just beginning to do what the psalmist said earlier, taste and see that the Lord is good. And in both instances, in John 1 and John 4, we see both saying, how, how did he know this about me? And the great transcendent irony in John 4 is here's the man, Jesus, who stops at the well. He went out of his way. If you study this passage later, you'll learn he went out of his way to be here. And he sits at this well and he asks her for water. He doesn't just talk to her. He doesn't just strike up a conversation and break barriers, of social barriers of respectability. He asks her for water as if he had a need or something. The transcendent irony is that this man prior to this at creation was the one who held water in the hem of his garment, Isaiah 40, and scooped up the oceans in the palm of his hand. Jesus probably doesn't need water, does he? In his humanity, he does. And he says, how about a drink? And he uses that to bring forgiveness 
significance into her life, to acceptance, to a new path that this woman had never known. We see here Jesus in his ministry as a rabbi. You have an open Bible in John. Turn a few chapters over to chapter 7 in verse 15 and 16. John 7, 15 and 16. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Learning without studying. Can I just say, students, there's a lot of you in the room. Can I just say, students, this is one way you don't need to be like Jesus, okay? Knowledge and insight without study. Don't, don't try to be like Jesus there, okay? He, he knew. He knows. Israel was led by prophets, priests, and kings. They all had a role. But there were no rabbis. I've taught this to some of you before. There were no rabbis in the Old Testament. Between Malachi and Matthew, there, there becomes the establishment of the synagogue, the center of learning, and there emerged the role of the rabbi. The rabbi simply means teacher. And Jesus goes into this environment as a rabbi, as a teacher. I say to you this morning, come and see. This Easter week, come and see. Come and see a man who's a savior. Come and see a man who's a teacher. You know, Teaching is always, good teaching, I should say, is always a form of love. Do you believe that? Can you think of a teacher in your life that loved you, that didn't just instruct you with the A, Bs, and Cs, reading, writing, and arithmetic and such, but he or she, they loved you. Teaching is a form of love. It's a manner in which great love can be expressed. Have you had a teacher that's really impacted your life? In fact, take 30 seconds right now. We'll put you on the spot. Turn to somebody next to you and tell them the name of a teacher you remember the most and why. You got it? Do that right now. I'll give you 30 seconds. All right, back with us. Are y'all doing what I'm telling you this morning or just faking it out there? <laughs> Some of you are comparing your tourney picks or something, but do you have a teacher? Can you remember one? I kind of forced you to. Some of you just flat out made it up, right? Right there on the spot. You're that good. I'm also looking at teachers in the room today. Don't you? God bless our teachers. I wish, wish God would pay them more. Yeah, you can clap. They'd rather have an apple, but you can clap. <laughs> For me, if I was sitting among you, I would have said, I would have told you about Mrs. Schultz, my fifth grade teacher. And I don't want to tell you everything about me in fifth grade because I was a rebel rouser. But Mrs. Schultz saw something in me. She had a love of learning and a passion for teaching, and she pointed out gifts that people had. I remember a buddy of mine named Mike Speed, he was very nerdy. And God loves the nerdy people too, just as he loves the teachers. But man, Mike Speed, uh, I don't know where he is today. I'm talking about him in church. But Mike Speed, she noticed, Mrs. Schultz noticed in Mike Speed that he could sing. 
And once a week, she would bring Mike up and put a stool in the center of the room, and Mike would just sing songs to the class. And at first, I, at that time, I thought, man, this is kind of weird. You know, nobody, nobody wants this. We, we had recorder lessons in fifth grade. You know, anybody learn to play the recorder? But Mike Speed would sing. Mrs. Schultz was good at that. You know, she noticed in me a timidity and a shyness at that time. And she drew it out in me. She was the first person to ever tell me about what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of fear or, power or, or timidity or shyness. He hadn't given us that spirit, but he's given us a spirit of, of power and love and a sound mind. And Mrs. Schultz would have me come up and speak and share stories in the fifth grade. She pointed out some things that she saw in people, teaching is a form of love. Every gospel records that when Jesus would teach the crowds, now, rabbis, I've taught some of you this before, but rabbis, it, it would be the opposite. The teaching would be the opposite where the rabbi would sit and the people would stand. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? We, we ought to do that. I could get used to that, just sitting down while you stand up, right? But that, that would be the form. And it says that in all gospels, it says that Jesus saw the people that he was teaching and he what? He had compassion on them. It was teaching with the goal to love people, to see their lives be transformed. When Jesus taught, I bet almost everybody in the room knows this, but when Jesus taught, he used something called parables, or simply put, stories. He would take something that was new and fresh, something that he wanted the people to learn, and he would attach it to something old and something very familiar. Farmers of Galilee could learn about sowing the seed of the word of God. Casters of nets could become fishers of men. They, they would learn things about uh, what Jesus wanted to teach them by, by him showing them normal things in their everyday lives. Keepers of the flock could learn about following a good shepherd. And Jesus taught them in this way, taking normal everyday things and teaching about the kingdom because he wanted them to remember. He wanted them to learn and he wanted to teach them something. He wanted to teach them that you ought to learn every day. Not just have, you shouldn't just have to wait once a week to get back to the temple, but you should be a lifelong learner. Life is an adventure and we've got to look and see what God has put in front of us and to discern with wisdom and understanding. So he wanted people to get away from just being at the temple once a week with the stained glass and the magnificent granite in the cathedrals and the hallelujah chorus. And he taught things about like the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. He talked about mustard seeds and yeast and dough. And he gave all these illustrations so that when they would see these everyday objects, they would say, ah, oh, remember what he said, I can learn each and every day. In the parables and stories that he told, he made claims about the kingdom, the coming kingdom, and the kingdom, as we'll talk about in a second, that's at hand. And this is when Jesus began seeing lives transformed and also started getting in some trouble, a little bit of trouble that turned into a bunch of trouble. The dissident, the one who disturbed. And can I just say that as religious people, as we gather, our sermons probably ought to be more disturbing. I mean, look at our hearts. Look at my life and look at yours. We probably need to be disturbed more, wouldn't you say? And Jesus, in his compassion and in his love and his rabbinical teaching, he disturbed. He upset the conventional categories. Jesus made claims about himself. 
Several years ago, we did a sermon series. Some of you might recall, we did a sermon series called Jesus According to Jesus, where we looked at the seven I am statements found in the gospel of John. Jesus said seven things about himself. He started with I am. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Vineyards were common in that day. You would see vineyards all around. You would see vines around. Jesus said, I am the vine. You're not the vine. You are the branches. You're not the vine. You're the branches. And the role of the branch is to abide in the vine. John 15, you can't do anything without me. And you're running around trying to do everything. But what you really need to do, listen, church, what you really need to do is abide in me. And if you abide in me, he gives a promise that some of us are finding to be true. You will bear fruit. He says, not only you will bear fruit, you will bear much fruit. Not just much fruit, but you will bear much fruit that will remain. Jesus cared about that. He cared that we don't just start in his teachings, but that we continue in them. And Jesus would use these everyday objects and pictures around the people to teach them, to show them about a coming kingdom. His teaching, these parables the rap from the great rabbi, they, were, they taught about things that were small and subversive. I mentioned a minute ago the mustard seed, the, the tiniest, among the tiniest of seeds. Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. He probably was hearkening back to one of the prophets who earlier taught that we ought not to despise humble beginnings. There's some of you who need to hear that this morning. You're trusting God for something in your life and you want there to be growth. You want something to happen. You want to involve people. You want to start something. You want to see good things happen and people's lives be affected. Despise not humble beginnings. And the life of Jesus shows us that significant things can happen and many times do happen with small beginnings. A mustard seed, Jesus taught in Matthew 13, is planted. And this mustard seed, when it's planted, it can grow a tree. And in Matthew 13, uh, 32, it says this tree will, uh, will draw birds of the air and they will nest and find their rest. What a great kingdom principle. Things start small and God will use them. I have a friend in my life who tells me several times regularly that he's praying for humility, praying for, not for his humility, but for my humility. And I, I'm not going to lie, I appreciate that prayer. I mean, who among us doesn't want to be humble, right? I don't know if they want to be humbled, but I'd like, for, I'd like to be humble. I'd like to be perceived as humble. He's, he prays for my humility. And I think the idea each time he says this, he talks about our church. And he doesn't want me to get any pride or think there's any reason uh, for success that's brought out by me. And, you know, can I just tell you, and I told my brother this, my friend this recently, I said, man, I appreciate your prayers for my humility. But you know what I'd like? I'd like your prayers for my confidence. Because let me tell you a story. When we didn't have a church, when we were about to start a church at Dueling and there was nobody, I was confident. I mean, I, was kind of, I, didn't, I didn't have humility because, man, I thought, I know how to do this. We can do this. I know what I'm doing here. There wasn't a church. There wasn't any people. And now fast forward, we got some people. And I, can I tell you, I need your prayers for my confidence because you know what? I can't do this because there's people. It's not working for me. I am not qualified. I am not gifted. I don't have the heart for this in many ways. And, yes, I want to continue to learn humility, but, man, I need some confidence. 
Small things, significant things rather, can start from small things. But everything that God chooses to grow in any way of significance, he wants it to grow and be a tree that flourishes and that brings people and causes people to find rest and nesting. That's the reason that he would tell these stories to teach us, to get in our hearts. Can I just say, as I study the teachings of Jesus in my own life, he knows everything about me. Some of you are like, oh, Robert, I didn't know that about you. I'm not coming back on Easter Sunday now that I know that about you, right? Uh, You don't know how insecure I am, right? You don't know how much confidence that I lack. But Jesus, this man, this rabbi, this teacher, he knows everything about me. He knows everything about you. Jesus, as he taught, he didn't just teach in small, subversive ways, but he taught things that seemed baffling and backwards. He said that if you want to be first, that you must be last. If you want to be great, you must serve. If you want to be lifted up, you must humble yourself. If you want to lose, uh, save your life, you have to lose your life. If you want your life to reproduce, John 12, 24, you've got to bury your life in the ground. You've got to die to yourself. You know, you and I need to die. There's stuff in your life right now, you need to die to that. There's something painful in my life right now. I'm learning to die to that. We need to die. It's the only way that our life will reproduce, just like a seed going into the ground that produces something thereafter. And Jesus taught in such a backwards and baffling way. When Jesus taught at first century Jerusalem, there were a few real dominant things in Jewish life and culture. in first century Palestine. The first thing was the temple. The second big thing in Jewish religious life that day was the Sabbath. And the third big thing was the law or the law of God. The temple was a place for sacrifice. Some of you ask me, why the sacrifices? Why the sacrifices of long ago? And the answer to that, simply, is that God wanted to show people through these sacrifices, through the blood and through the mess, that our sin is very, very ugly. You know, he wants us to hate our sin, how it separates us from him and each other. And some of you today, you're in pain, you're estranged, and you're struggling in a relationship. There's a conflict between you and another or within yourself. There are warring factions within. Our sin is ugly. I want to be a church where we preach that. And there were ritual sacrifices going on in the temple. That's part of what happened at the temple. And the Sabbath, of course, was to be a place of rest, but it grew in Jesus' day when he showed up. The Sabbath had become a place for overwhelming, burdensome prohibitions. Hey, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. You should, you should, you should, you should not, you should not, you should not on the Sabbath. And the law, of course, was the law of God given to Moses on Mount Sinai that was translated or written down in the Old Testament. But when Jesus showed up, the religious people had, had misinterpreted and, listen, they added on to it. Historical teaching shows us, the documents, inscriptions from the time show us that the Pharisees and the religious people, they had 613 different laws that they added to God's original 10 commandments. God help us. Help us as a church to stop adding and adding and adding and adding. And when Jesus shows up, the rabbi, come see a man. Why did did people want to see this man? 
When Jesus came to the temple, what did he do? He overturned tables one day and cracked things with whips when he showed up at the temple. And on the Sabbath, what did he do? He healed on the Sabbath. And with the law, Jesus came and said, no, 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 no. I give you a new law. It's a brand new law, and it is the law, say it with me, it is the law of, somebody say God, it's the law of love. Love who? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. By the way, Jesus added the word mind in the Hebrew literature. It was love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And Jesus added mind because he wanted to cultivate. This great rabbi wanted to cultivate in us a love of learning. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your, you know this, love your neighbor as yourself. Everybody knows that. You can go out there and add, everybody knows that. Why? Because he's the greatest teacher of all time. Love your neighbor as, as yourself. Love yourself. Not in a narcissistic way, not in a selfie way, but love yourself so that you can love others. And then here's the kicker, the one that really separated, the one that just as he healed on the Sabbath and just as he overturned in the temple, when he talked about his law of love, he said, love your enemies. Jesus came and he, he gave us, I've told you, a new kingdom. And Jesus described this kingdom. The people in his day had hoped. They had hoped that it was a forceful kingdom, a militant kingdom, a kingdom that would crush the rule and reign of Rome and set them free. And Jesus talked about a different kingdom, this kingdom of love. And he said very provocatively and again disturbingly, he said the kingdom is at hand. You're waiting but I'm telling you, the kingdom, it's right here. What's the first public act that Jesus did besides the, the water into wine at the wedding festival in John 2? Luke 4 tells us he, uh, as a boy, he got the scroll. He got, he got Isaiah and he read. This is in Luke 4. He read from Isaiah about the coming Messiah who would set the oppressed free and he would, he would bless and help the poor and, and allow the blind to see, et cetera, et cetera. He's, and, he, and when he read that, he said, it, it's at hand right now. I'm here in your midst. You see why Jesus caused trouble? Woo! In this kingdom that's at hand, he's saying, ask, seek, and knock because it is here. It's here and now. He's ready and willing. And with this kingdom, it gets us back to John 4 and the woman at the well. He says to us in this kingdom, seek first. Seek first the kingdom. But we don't. Too many times we don't. This week I read from a, a non-religious person something fascinating at a commencement speech just a few years back. This graduation speaker said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. 
And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. Non-religious person said that. Jesus, breaking societal norms, strikes up the conversation, and he goes from living water to talking to this woman about a long, sordid sexual history with men. Not to humiliate her, but to point her to something that will satisfy. Because her need for men, her longing to be loved and held and caressed was eating her alive. And that's what the great savior does. He comes to you and to me in our addictions, in our ailments, in our illness, in our pain and our problems. And he says to us, it's eating you alive. This kingdom, this kingdom that's at hand is a kingdom that we ought to seek first. And this morning, this high and holy week of Easter on Passover Sunday, I ask you, what are you seeking? In John 4, I want you to read it later, Jesus would say to her, hey, let me tell you, I've told you about what you're seeking. And let me tell you about a water that will, that will always quench your thirst. He goes on in John 7 to talk about rivers of living water flowing up out of you. Isn't that the thing about God? We stress it often here. You're not, it's just not you being called to be blessed. You're called to bless others. You see, when we come to Jesus, this kingdom at hand, and we seek it first, we move from, he wants to move you from come and see to go and tell. And not just go and tell, but for the church to go and make, to go and make disciples to go and make people who really know how to come and see, who have come and who have seen, and who've seen the Savior lift them up from what is so vile about what we're seeking after to what's beautiful and good, to what's truthful. Good teaching is always a form of love. John 1, Nathaniel, Jesus, this man, you know everything about me. The woman at the well, you know everything about me. The, the Jewish people in John 7 looking at Jesus, he knows everything. He doesn't even study. He, he didn't go to school for this, but he knows everything. And he does. What are you seeking? For me, part of my story I'm like you, I live in the real world, and with my beliefs, I have doubts. And I've gone through stretches of life where I've had real serious doubts. And one of the things, what I'm sharing with you is very personal now, but one of the things that just draws me more and more to Jesus is the truth of it. 75 times in these gospels, Jesus uses the phrase, truly, 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 I say unto you. And I ask people over and over, those who are struggling with skepticism and cynicism and doubt and unbelief, I say, look at the way Jesus taught. Look at what Jesus teaches and follow it and see where it leads you. And you can look at the opposite way and see 
where it leads you. And not a week goes by where I don't have the privilege as a pastor to talk to one of you who tells me something about your life. You open up your suitcase just a little bit and you tell me what you've been seeking. And you can keep going down that road that doesn't satisfy, that could eat you alive, or we can follow the way of Jesus. And I'm saying to you, church, today, what Jesus teaches, the greatest teacher, the master teacher, the rabbi of all rabbis, what he teaches is right. What he teaches is about money and greed and economics and sexuality and love and relationships. It is true. Truly, truly, I say unto you follow when when the bible says come and see i look at it like this jesus is saying the bible is telling us to run an experiment test me try me check it out see if what jesus teaches is true or not bill moyers produced a pbs documentary several years ago about the world famous song amazing grace Amazing Grace, some of you know, was written by a man named John Newton who was a violent slave trader who on a merchant ship one day encountered a storm that almost capsized the boat. And in dramatic fashion, John Newton, this violent slave trader, turned his life around. He turned his life over to Jesus Christ. And later he would, he had many setbacks if you read the full story of John Newton, many, many setbacks. He, Baptists would say he backslid. He backslid a bunch. But he turned his life over to Jesus. And later he would join William Wilberforce's great noble fight to end slavery and oppression. This documentary, if some of you saw it, it depicted, showed footage and told the story of this concert in 1988 at Wembley Stadium in London. Thousands and thousands of mostly young concert goers had gathered, bands including um, U2 and Guns N' Roses took the stage and made great music. And by the time Guns N' Roses got to the stage, this documentary shows the, the crowd, I mean, it turned pretty, pretty ugly. It was just a mess. Almost everyone there apparently was drunk or high. The final performer of the night was an African-American opera singer. And this African-American opera singer took to the stage, stepped up to the mic, and she began singing a cappello, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. And by the time that she got to the third verse, this rowdy crowd had turned to somber silence and they were doing what you did with me. They just joined in. I prompted you a little bit. I don't think they were prompted. And thousands sang Amazing Grace. They sang a song that the world so desperately needs. And they sang a song that the world so desperately lacks.
I once was lost. I was blind, but now what? Now I see. Come and see. Come and see. This Easter week, I want to tell you again that Jesus is not a philosophical, conceptual, theological, abstract subject to be debated by experts. He's a person who offers you and I a real living, breathing invitation that we so desperately need. Look, folks, it's not just the, it's not just the people in the prison that I preached at that ought to be hungry and desperate. It's you and me.